You're listening to a podcast of Master Your Finances with me, Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner professional. Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on 1077thebronc.com. Another day, another dollar, and our certified financial planner professional, Kurt Baker, will give you the tips you need to turn that single into a sea of green with Master Your Finances. Whether you have enough to get by or too much in your pockets, Kurt Baker and his weekly guests are here to show you how to manage it all. Master Your Finances is underwritten by Certified Wealth Management and Investment, LLC. Now listen up, because it's time to get a hold of those money matters. Good morning and welcome back to another edition of Master Your Finances, presented by Certified Wealth Management and Investment. I'm Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner professional located in Princeton, New Jersey. And I can be reached through our website, which is www.cwmi.us. Or you can call me directly at 609-716-4700. We're very happy to have with us this week uh, Stuart Klein, who is the vice president of employee benefits for um, CBiz, who's been helping clients achieve their goals for over 15 years in the area of employee benefits and human capital management, has partnered with numerous companies across an array of industries in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, helping to attract and retain talent. Stewart's passion is providing clients with solutions that provide long-term value to the company and its employees. Main goal is to provide his clients with the most competitive benefit package available while keeping them informed of their ever-changing healthcare industry. Now that I have to tell you, as a small business owner, as you're probably well aware, this is a little bit of a challenge for any big businesses and small. Um, of course, big businesses have like, like their own like departments that take care of all this stuff. But the smaller your business, especially with all the changes going on, I think one, just taking care of your own benefits is, is key. And two, um, being competitive. So if I'm a small business owner and I want to attract somebody that maybe is working for a Fortune 500 company now, it's very tough sometimes for them to leave that big package behind. So you have to kind of like figure that out. So, I mean, what's been your experience, I guess, with some of the issues? I guess, who's your target? Like what size companies you generally address and how do you um, to work with that? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here. <laughs> it's a pleasure. We at CBiz work with upper, small and mid-market companies. Mm-hmm. So this is defined pretty much by, I would say, 50 to 1,000 employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can go larger. Uh, we find that the 50 to 500 space, though, is really underserved. So that's kind of our wheelhouse. And the reason is when a company grows to over 50 employees, new laws start to take effect. And there's a lot more regulations and compliance that they have to worry about. And a lot of times, this is just simply outgrown the comfort zone of the local broker that does not have the national resources. When, however, you're a couple hundred employees, a lot of times you're still viewed as a small fish by the large national companies, the other large national companies, what we find, and they're just not receiving the service they deserve. So I, I would say that's the best, uh, the best market that we've been able to serve. Okay, well, that's excellent. So, so I guess, what got you motivated to get involved in this? This is an interesting like niche out there. So do you have any personal experiences, like what brought you kind of to this industry in the first place? Well, that, that's a great question. For the last 10 years, I've been involved in HR outsourcing for small businesses, which involved a number of different functions, employee management, compliance, and benefits. And what I found was the most interesting area was the benefits area. It's what, as we all know, with the changes with the Affordable Care Act, it's really a year-to-year proposition in terms of all the changes going on, all the challenges for businesses. And after payroll, let's face it, it's an employer's second largest expense. Mm -hmm. So it's viewed, like you mentioned earlier, 
as a really high important area of the business. So we found, I find that that is an area that's most interesting and also really provided the greatest opportunity to help the greatest number of businesses. Because a lot of times, I mean, when employees come over, they're, they're, they look at, like, of course, the compensation package. So, um, so what are some strategies, I guess, that people should have as far as what things they should be setting up and what things they want to make sure they have in place for an employee so they can have a nice, attractive, well-rounded package for their existing employees? Because employee retention, obviously, is huge yep. because you don't want to lose your employee to that Fortune 500 company either. Yep. But on the other hand, you, wanna, and you also want to bring them in. So you have to, just by nature, especially we're talking about that 50 to 100, you really have to have... Um, benefits because otherwise you're at a huge disadvantage, right? Exactly. Great point. So as we all know, we have a very tight labor market right now. Unemployment is near an all-time low. And the studies have shown that candidates, especially millennials, will go to a company for similar compensation where the benefits are better. Mm -hmm. So they're becoming a far more vital role when it comes to attracting and retaining talent. What we do at CBiz, and it's highly recommended to perform an annual benefits review with your clients. And if they're not doing this with their current consultant or broker, it would be a good idea because you want to find out where there are any gaps, if any. What's important to your employees? And a lot of times what we'll do is we'll recommend that our clients survey their employees. And this may seem like a novel concept to a lot of companies asking the employees what they want, but it actually gives the management and the ownership really vital feedback so they can find out exactly what the employees want, what they like, what they don't like about their current program, and allow it to, t- to tweak it as necessary coming up for next year's um, review. So what are the, some of the things you found when you do these surveys? Uh, what are some of the things that you found that people are like, oh, I love this benefit, or maybe, maybe you're paying for something they don't necessarily use or care for, right? Sure. So it kind of works both ways a little bit. So what are some things that you've discovered through these different surveys? Well, it's interesting. Uh, It's different with every company, but I I can tell you that we've done these surveys and one one client we did it with, it was kind of funny because the employees, uh, the, the ownership had said, you know, whatever you do when you come in, we don't want any more expensive plans. The employees have enough taken out of their paychecks as it is right now. And then when we surveyed the employees, the employees actually said, you know, we would actually pay more for another option that provided some better coverage. So sometimes there is a disconnect between what the ownership thinks the employees want and what they actually want. So to that point, options are always a good thing. You're never going to satisfy all your employees with one plan. So what we try to do is learn about the demographic are they high users of the healthcare system? Are they low users? Uh, what's most important to them? And then use that information to consult with the owners to put in place two or three plans that really meet the needs of everyone. Oh, that's great. So um, so you have multiple plan options within the overall strategy for it, right? Exactly. And that's just with the medical. Uh, mm-hmm. When you go beyond that, what we find a lot of times is the employee's are not offered the other ancillary benefits or voluntary benefits that they really value and really want. So for example, a lot of owners and employers don't realize that they can offer the employees a whole host of voluntary benefits that they can choose whether to enroll in, but if they do, it doesn't cost the owners a dime, but you're doing them a great service because you're allowing them access to these plans that they wouldn't have on their own, or if they did get on their own, it would be a lot more expensive. 
So there's really, it doesn't sound like there's any downside. You just told me that there's a benefit you can offer your employees without any expense to the employer. So I don't, I don't see any downside to that scenario at all. There really isn't. See. There's no downside. You know what? It just comes, you know, it all comes down to whether the owners or whoever's in charge of benefits at the company mm-hmm. want to take the time to take a look at what they have now and then take a look at where they can improve. And it's really not that much added work. Uh, the, their consultant or broker, you know, will just basically augment the lineup so mm-hmm. that next renewal, they can offer these additional benefits. And the employees will really thank them for it, the study show. Okay, well, that's great. So obviously you want to keep your employees happy. Um, so they have different options. Um, so have you, So what are some of the options you've seen them come up with that maybe that some of the employees like that, that might be voluntary, that sure. they might buy into, that, you know, that we should be aware of, I guess? Well, for starters, uh, the big thing is disability or additional life insurance that on their own as individual policies would be very expensive. However, with the owners giving them access to group coverage, it's a lot more affordable. So those two areas are really key, uh, especially if somebody is in a sector with high physical demands that Mm -hmm. you have an increased risk of getting injured and then time away from the job, like manufacturing or uh, some sort of contracting. Uh, In addition, we all know about the large amount of student debt that people are entering the workforce with. So there are a number of companies out there that provide employers student loan repayment programs and ability for education, for refinancing, and the ability to have their repayment take place through paycheck deductions so the employee doesn't have to ever worry about defaulting on that loan. And these are other strategies and other strategic partners that that CBiz works with just to give our clients as comprehensive a program as they can. Well, I think that's important. As we all know, there's a big student debt kind of bubble going on right now. And I think that's, especially with your newer employees, they're very likely to come out with a significant amount of debt. I think, of course, you don't want to default on that or even by, by and I've seen people do that by accident. They're not paying attention, and uh, to have it automatically transfer out, that's kind of a win-win all the way around. You Absolutely. can make sure that um, everybody's taken care of. Well, wow, that's a lot to digest. There's a lot going on here. I appreciate it, Stuart. Uh, when we come back in just a few minutes, we'll continue to talk about some of the uh, important developments in uh, the benefits world these days because it's very complicated and it's always changing. We'll be right back. It's not- It's all about how you manage your money. Now let's get back to learning how from Kurt Baker of Certified Wealth Management and Investment with Master Your Finances. Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finances. I'm Kurt Baker, Certified Financial Planner Professional. I'm here with Stuart Klein, Vice President of uh, with CBiz and expert in employee benefits. Uh, And we've been talking about, you know, some of the basic structure, some of the facts that uh, employee benefits are becoming very important, especially in a tight labor market. More and more employers, whether large or small, are paying extra attention right now because they want to retain employees they have and, of course, attract new employees. And that's, so it's even more focused, I think, than it has been in the, in the, in the not-too-distant past. And now I think we want to talk a little bit about there's always seems to be changes going on. I know that we have a political season coming up. This is always a conversation that seems to be going on. is about health care and how do we handle that. So from an employer standpoint and structuring your benefits package, what are some of the things you're seeing as far as the challenges out there and maybe some of the strategies that we can use now um, to kind of address some of those challenges that we have? Sure. Well, great question. I mean, if anyone who saw the debate last night saw that healthcare it was front and center mm-hmm. uh, on all the candidates' minds. And there's just a number of challenges that have been in place for a while now. 
everyone talks about the rising cost, both for the employer and the employee, but it's actually more than that. Everyone feels a lack of control over just the direction that the entire system is going. Physicians are feeling more stress because the reimbursements are starting to get cut and they don't feel like that they have a lot of control within the framework that they have to function. Uh, we all know how inefficient the system is. There's a lot of administrative work and paperwork that has to be done. And in terms of the healthcare consumer, there's a large variance of cost for the same procedure between different facilities. So it's not as cut and dry as if you go out shopping for a TV or a car, but when you have to use the healthcare system, it's very confusing and it's frustrating because you find that you could actually pay a lot more for the same procedure depending upon where you go. So all of this is resulting in the fact that it's a very inefficient system and as a country, we're actually not that healthy. Even though we're a very wealthy country, where I saw we were recently ranked 35th out of 169 countries on Bloomberg's list of the world's healthiest nations. So that gives you an idea of actually how low we're scoring for our health in terms of where we should be, uh, given our resources. Right. Yeah, that's kind of a, that's kind of sad. And I know, I mean, speaking to what you just said before, administrative costs. I remember somebody spoke at one of our conferences, and she was a she's a physician and a, a CFP uh, a designee. And she was talking about how I think she has to, I think it was somewhere around thirty percent of the cost of healthcare is in the actual processing the paperwork through the system. Yep. So if you could just cut that down to like five or ten percent, you're going to save twenty five percent, twenty percent, just through inefficiencies. Absolutely. Forget about like the you know the better care and things like that. Um, and so I know it's amazing. There's a lot. To, there's, a, there's a lot to be done. And one of the things I've seen, and I don't know if this is falling into the benefit side, is we're trying to encourage people to have healthier habits, so to speak, and try to, because of course, if, if we don't need the system, that's, that's very inexpensive, right? Exactly. <laughs> you can lower, you can lower, uh, you know, uh, life insurance by not dying, right? So if we can live longer, you can lower the cost of life insurance. If we can right. be healthier, yep. I mean, that's kind of another way to do it. So increase the efficiency, be healthier, and then obviously there's a lot in the system. And, and I think another thing that's interesting to me is that you're, 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 the cost thing. I remember once when, I, when our son was very young, mm-hmm. I asked literally, what, he was going to have to have his tonsils out. How much is it going to cost to have your tonsils out? Yep. And I couldn't get an answer. Yep. I literally could not get. They go, I don't know. I go, I mean, I just looked at it like, don't, don't you want me to pay you at some point? It's, it's, it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah, <that's> so. <laughs> it is. Uh, I'm sure everyone saw in the news over the last week. The president just signed a new bill stating that hospitals will have to divulge the costs of certain common treatments and procedures. He just wants greater transparency, which everyone wants. But it's very, it's very tough and it's frustrating because what you'll find is there's actually a large variance in costs for the same procedure across different facilities. Mm. But to your point, prevention is part of the solution. And we work with a lot of companies to help educate them and their employees on the idea of wellness and well-being and working that into their lifestyle. So the idea is that if the employee takes ownership and starts to eat better, starts to exercise more, and there are a lot of things within his or her control, they can actually affect their and decrease their use of the healthcare system, thus lowering the cost. And, you know, it's been shown to work. It's been shown to work over time. And to your other point, there's actually technology now that enables employees to be better healthcare consumers by allowing them to shop around. So, for example, there's apps you can have on your phone. And if you need, for example, an MRI, you can plug that in along with your zip code 
and all the facilities that offer MRIs within your area will come up. And the employee can see that it's much less expensive to get that procedure at a freestanding facility than it is at the local hospital. Well, that's fascinating. I wasn't aware that they have an app now to go actually shop your MRI now. I, I guess we always, in the past, I've always assumed, I think that doesn't the doctor say, well, go get the MRI and go down to this facility, but yep. you don't necessarily have to go to that particular facility. Nope. Um, so is that an app that plugs into, is, is it just general cost? Because now you have your, your insurance part of it, right? So insurance companies are tied into all this too. Right. So one, they have to reimburse, right? So it has to be a facility that the insurance will reimburse. Right. Is there a difference between companies and facilities as far as how that insurance piece fits into the facility, fits into my need? How does all that kind of Great question. mix together? It's actually through the insurance carrier. Okay. So one great thing about being a benefits consultant at one of the 20th largest insurance brokers in the country is CBIS works with all the carriers. Mm -hmm. So we meet with them quarterly and they'll come in to tell us about their latest advances in technology and service offerings for their clients. So all the carriers at this point have that technology built within their own apps. So for example, my insurance is through United and through United, I can actually plug in the procedure or test that I need, mm -hmm. and then you can get a readout and you can get a sense of what it looks like at the varying facilities. So you can decide where to go. And it all comes down to education because like you said, years ago, people didn't think they had a choice. That's, that's incredible because I know there's different types of facilities, right? You have like urgent care facilities, you have hospitals, you have the doctor's office. There's all kinds of places you can go to yep. get some of these services now. And this equipment is around, right? It's, it's much more... Exactly. Available than it was, you know, even five or 10 years ago. Exactly. So it all comes down to choices. But if the healthcare consumers don't know about the choices, then they're not able to utilize it. And the fact is that the overhead for a freestanding MRI facility is a lot lower than that of a hospital mm -hmm. because that's all they're doing. Right. And it's as a result, they charge a lot less for the procedure. You know, same thing like you mentioned with the urgent care. Those facilities are now all around the country. So part of the education is directing the employees if they don't have anything major to, rather than going to the emergency room and paying a copay that's maybe three or four times out of an urgent care copay and waiting three or four hours, go to an urgent care facility. That's good <clears> advice. <throat> yeah, so we can do a little more shopping around than we could in the past. And as far as the prevention side, I just recall like some of the insurance companies I've been, belong to, I've had uh, the benefits are, they include like, encouraging you to go to the gym, things like that. Like re they'll reimburse costs or, yes. or at least a, a dollar amount saying, hey, if you go and you can show that you went. So aren't, are more, is that more and more, is that part of it, I guess? It is. To encourage people to go somewhere? It is. Great point. So that is an integral part of it. So basically the U.S. healthcare system used to be a diagnose and treat model where everybody would be going to the doctor a lot, getting a lot of treatment, and it was, as you might imagine, it was very expensive for the healthcare system and for the consumer. It's slowly transforming into more of a prevent and manage-based model, where the consumer and the, uh, in other words, the employees are educated in terms of what they can do to reduce their risk of getting sick and needing these procedures and needing these drugs, so that they, in turn, will be lower users of the healthcare system, and also will be as a byproduct in better health, uh, you know, in their own lives. So, so is the incentive process changing at all? Because right now, of course, if I go to a doctor's office and they perform a whole bunch of a whole bunch of tasks, uh, you know, like a fee for service, right? So yep. they get reimbursed for all these tests they're doing. So, but what if I don't really necessarily need those tests? Um, 
but my incentive as a doctor, I mean, they're human beings, they're running a business too. They're going to be, well, just order them all. Right? Exactly. And it is changing. No. <laughs> so how does that how does that kind of work? Because uh, I don't know. Right. They say order all these tests. You go, OK, fine. Order all these tests. No, it is changing. Uh, and to your point, the emphasis is now being placed on quality of care, not quantity of care. So just the example you gave with traditional fee for service healthcare, physicians have an incentive to provide more treatment. So the more the patients came in, the more they got reimbursed because they were reimbursed for every visit. And the incentive wasn't there for treating the patient, uh, getting them well sooner. However, there's a new system. You might have heard the term accountable care organizations or ACOs. And these are becoming more prevalent around the country. And basically, the way these work is you have groups of doctors, hospitals, and other providers coming together voluntarily to give high-quality care to patients. And the name is derived from the fact that the providers are actually accountable for the quality of care they give to the patients, not the quantity. Okay. So it's they're financially incentivized to get that patient better sooner and get them out of the healthcare system than to keep on treating them. Excellent. We're going to definitely talk about that more when we come back from the break here in a few minutes is the, the shift from the fee-for-service into kind of maintaining quality care, uh, which I'm all for. We all want to be healthier, right? We'll be right back. It's not about the money, money, money. It's all about how you manage your money. Now let's get back to learning how from Kurt Baker of Certified Wealth Management and Investment with Master Your Finances. Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finances. I am Kurt Baker, and I'm here with uh, Stuart Klein, who is uh, the Vice President of Employee Benefits with CBiz. And we've been talking about the healthcare system a little bit and how it relates to benefits and uh, how the benefits are very important for employers and employees and one of the shifts that's starting to happen is that we're now moving from the fee-for-service model, which essentially means the more stuff you order, the more money that the provider will make, into really kind of being more accountable. So it's the accountable care organizations you were describing. And that sounds really intriguing to me because it would be kind of nice if we're all on the same page. Like, I want to be healthy. Everybody wants us to be healthy. Of course, the insurance company wants you to be healthy. And it would be kind of nice if the, if the medical field was incentivized to keep us healthy, yep. then we kind of win all the way around, right? So we want to shift that life expectancy, because my understanding is life expectancy has started to trail down a little bit recently, which is really not what we want to be doing, especially when, as you point out, we're you know one of the wealthiest countries. We spend a lot on health care. Yep. We should be getting um, a return on our investment, right? So we need to make sure that we're, uh, we're staying healthy, living longer and more enjoyable lives, right, as well, I think. So Absolutely. can you kind of explain a little bit how this shift is happening? How do we move? Because if I'm, if I'm a fee-for-service physician, right. I can't just turn my business upside down. So how do I kind of, how do I do this, right, sure. and still make a living? Absolutely. No, absolutely. <laughs> so it's interesting. You know, even though employers are the largest purchasers of health insurance, unlike other industries where they can leverage their economies of scale, that doesn't happen with healthcare. So... With healthcare, they have not yet organized to leverage their economies of scale to improve either the quality of care they get or lower the cost. However, that's starting to happen because the way the ACOs work, accountable care organizations, is you basically have direct contracting between the employers and all the providers and the facilities. So they're actually bypassing the insurers in this respect, and they're not beholden to the insurers for what they set as the reimbursement level and all the resultant administrative work that comes along with it. So for example, you may have a large employer or a group of large employers approach a facility and say, well, 
I know you normally charge $12,000 for your knee replacement, but when we bring you all of our business by virtue of our agreement, we'd like a negotiated rate of $10,000. And that's how the savings are incurred. And it's a win-win for everyone because the patient community benefits because you have improved outcomes, you have better quality of care and greater engagement, and the employers benefit because you have better coordinated care and an increased use of the in-network services which result in lower fees. So uh, they're not reimbursed for every visit that they see, but they're actually incentivized for getting the patient healthier sooner. Right. Well, that, that, I mean, that sounds wonderful. Obviously, lowering the cost is important. And one thing that, and you, maybe you can talk to this a little bit, one thing that I was, I forget who I was speaking to recently was saying that um, providers can be penalized for uh, a readmittance, right? So if yep. I come in for a diagnosis yep. and with a certain period of time, and, and what this uh, person was telling me is it wasn't just, it wasn't just the patient, it was the class. Yep. So if I am having a knee replacement, and then I have to come back in, and I don't know the time frames. Let's have to come back in three or four weeks to, to do other work on my knee because something happened. It's not just it's just not just my reimbursement. It's like everybody that was having a knee replacement done, that reimbursement may change based on how long I'm out of the hospital or out of the facility. for. And so it's seeing success. Correct. Right? That's the other side of it, the quality of care, not just reducing the cost. Right, right. So... So, I mean, that's interesting to me. So how is how pervasive is that? And she was just talking to me about it. Actually, it was last night. We were just talking about it. I thought, I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was an interesting idea. And um, Sure. Well, it's becoming more prevalent around the country. But the fact is, if you're a very small employer, this isn't really available to you yet. It's more for the larger employers mm-hmm. that have the economies of scale. And they've got the number of enrolled employees in their medical plan to come to the table with some negotiating power. You know, right. it's, it's, it's based on the, the size is what carries the weight there. However, the studies show that actually only 6% of employers right now contract directly with providers, but actually 22% of large employers consider this option when they were setting up their benefit plans for this year. So it's starting to be considered more and more and frankly, that's where the consultants come in, such as us at CBiz, because if the consultants don't bring these strategies to their clients, they don't know what's available and, and they can't pursue them. It does sound interesting because I know that there's some talk and I don't, you know, obviously we don't know what's going to happen, but they, like we're getting associations or groups of small, because this will work great for big businesses, which right. is great. Obviously, that's, that's a start, but most of our businesses are actually smaller businesses. Correct. So at some point you would hope that this philosophy will start to filter down to your smaller and medium-sized business because now, you know, dollar for dollar, you're going to get a little, you're, now you're going to get harder, right? Because I don't, I don't necessarily want them making up this cost they're negotiating on the large business and then all of a sudden you've got this small 50-employee business. It's like, okay, now we have to, our cost now just went up. Right. right? Great point. So how do we like work that whole process? Great point. Well, the good news <laughs> for small employers is there's options for them too. So you may have heard of the term captive. Mm-hmm. So Captives are basically where a group of small employers are joined together, and there has to be some criteria there. So in order for the captive to work, you know, there has to be some financial stability criteria that are met, and there also has to be some criteria regarding the health of each group. But basically, instead of one 500-employee company, you would group together 10 50-employee companies and as a result, you have the same economies of scale there, and then you can then take that group and go to directly to the providers and work out the contract negotiations 
to leverage the economies of scale. And that's something that CBiz is functioning as administrators of captives. And for the clients where it's the right fit, we are recommending that they do take a look. So they, oh, so this is starting. Is this a growing area of the business now? Is it starting to what? What's what have you? It's seen already in place. Okay, captives all around the country. So okay. it's just a function of is the employer a good fit for it? Right. And again, every employer is evaluated individually. But the great thing about it, as CBIS, is we have actuaries on board. Where we'll actually look at their financials, and we'll make projections and let them know if in fact they are a good fit for this model. It's not for everyone. Just right. like. Self-insuring isn't for everyone, but if they do meet the financial and health criteria, then it does absolutely make sense because there's no reason, to your point earlier, that a small employer should be denied the same advantages of, of the economies of scale and direct contracting You know, if it's a, a good fit for them. Right, right. So is this limited to companies 50 and above, or is it because you work down below that, or is it? Does it? Is there some size limitation on in creating these groups? You know, and- great, great question. There's, there's no set threshold. It all comes down to: is there a good financial stability within the company? Because mm-hmm. all these companies are are self insured, okay. and what is the health of the group? So, you know, it's the self insured market is changing. It used to be that you had to be a really large employer. We're talking over 100 employees to even be considered. But that bar is moving down. So we have clients that 75 or 80 employees are self-insuring their plan and actually taking more control and ownership than those that are fully insured because they're not beholden to the insurance companies. They're actually rewarded on the performance of the plan. So if the plan performs well, they actually can get a rebate. And if it doesn't perform well, then they are liable for some loss, but there is an what they call a stop loss carrier. So that insurance carrier is in place for catastrophic claims should they occur. So there's a limit to the losses the employer can take. But the bottom line is, you know, your the options for the employers to self-insure and take more ownership and control over their, I would say, financial, you know, challenges are in place today. Well, that's, that sounds fantastic. I mean, so it, as far as the groups go, so it was obviously financial stability because they're putting away money, basically setting aside a pot of money, almost like basically like an insurance company, it sounds like, right? Right, so you have, have to have good, 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 good cash flow. Right, so if I'm instead of sending my premium off to the insurance company, I'm sending it off to, I'm assuming, some fund somewhere that has to bre- maintain this because yep, the insurance commissioner is going to want to know what's going on <laughs> at some point, right? Correct, absolutely. <laughs> that you can actually pay your benefits. And then I like to stop loss, so it's kind of like a major you know, just in case we exceed all of this, but now you're, you know, the, the, you know, the law of large numbers, so to speak. Now you're spreading it over, over a larger group of people. Yep. And then you're going to get like a reinsurer type person. I mean, that's what, that's what I'm thinking of. I don't know if that's what it's called, but, but I know they do that with large, uh, yep. you know, uh, reinsurance type companies. So yep. now you now you don't have to worry as, quite as much. So at least you've got somebody uh, to, to backstop the, uh, a major issue, right? So. Exactly. It's the same concept of large numbers and, you know, driving rates down, but, the in, the advantage to the individual employer is is they have control over you know where their rates are going at renewal instead of that helpless feeling mm-hmm. that they feel right now where the on a fully insured client a lot of times they'll just come back and say well you have your 12% renewal and every other carrier is going to be about the same because that's how the entire market performed okay now they're evaluated just on their own performance okay and so the class of just one more quick question before we break but sure. um so 
I know different industries have different costs. Like if I'm a, a construction company, I'm going to have a different cost mm -hmm. than if I'm maybe a, a law firm, right? Where most people are sitting in an office all day. So can these types of industries blend together or do they generally have to be similar types of risk profiles as far as the health goes or does it matter? Um, yeah, you know what? It's not really industry specific. Okay. So it, it really has to do with those other profiles that okay. we talked about in terms of the health of the group okay. and also in terms of the financial stability. So they're doing some kind of a census on the group itself, it sounds like, to kind of admit into this and say, okay, you got a reasonably healthy group here. We can bring you in. Yeah. Yeah. And, okay. yeah, and you know what? It's also they have to maintain it too right. because you oh, know, there's a distinct advantage to being part of that captive. Okay. And it's incumbent on each captive member company to maintain that criteria so I'm going to go to my year. employees and I'm going to try to make sure, hey, we're going to go, we're going to go exercise this afternoon. Absolutely. <laughs> That's, no, you, you hit it on the head. That's where the. Especially your smaller employers where they like, everybody's in the audience. Hey, let's go do something physical, right? Let's go. You, have a good time. You hit the nail on the head. That's where the prevention <laughs> aspect comes in. Right. And that's where the wellness and the well-being and the diet and exercise and all the prevention right. comes into play because that's just going to lower your risk. Excellent. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. It's not about the money, money, money. It's all about how you manage your money. Now let's get back to learning how from Kurt Baker of Certified Wealth Management and Investment with Master Finances. Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finance. I'm Kurt Baker, Certified Financial Planner Professional, here with Stuart Klein, the Vice President of Employee Benefits for CBiz. And uh, we've been talking a lot about some of the changes happening and how employee benefits are very important from both perspectives, the employer and employee, and a little bit about how uh, some employers are now starting to kind of self-insure a little bit and taking on a little bit more of the risk and uh, giving them more of an incentive to really take care of employees. And I think this works really well for your smaller businesses because if, if I have a small enough business where I pretty much know everybody, you can really influence behaviors and you can really encourage people to lead a little bit healthier lives. Obviously, you can't you know, demand it in any way, but you can definitely set an example. You can definitely try to encourage people to be a little bit healthier. Yep. Um, and so I, I think part of that shift is trying to take care of ourselves, which is a win-win. So what kind of things are we doing out there now to really kind of push that forward and encourage wellness and prevention and things like that? Absolutely. So a self-insured program, the studies have shown that is it's only successful if you have the preventative aspect in place. And by prevention, we mean the wellness or well-being initiative. And, you know, there's, an, there's been years of data out there, so we can see exactly how the dots are connected. But according to the CDC, 60% of healthcare expenditures are attributable to things that are preventable or modifiable. For example, one's diet or mm -hmm. whether how active you are, if you go to the gym or you take a walk, whether or not you smoke, whether or not you get your basic health screenings each year. So these things are controllable. And what's also been shown is a direct link between all of these risks and major chronic conditions that place the majority of the burden on the healthcare system today. And we're talking about diabetes, cancer, hypertension, obesity. So these are, as everyone knows, what's utilizing the majority of the resources and, and, and what's, what are most common today. So historically, wellness programs have focused on activity, kind of what you alluded to earlier. Employees were rewarded for going to the gym, getting their biometric screen, or just kind of tracking their diet, what they ate. There was no modification or changes mm -hmm. or improvements made. The emphasis was placed on employees knowing their numbers. This is what I'm doing, and, and this is kind of what's reflected. 
Now, this approach has shown on a return on investment for employers just because of the awareness, but the studies show that after a, a few years even, the health benefits to the employees actually plateau. So they don't actually gain, get any healthier or you know, improve in any way just by knowing what they're doing. However, the shift now is towards what's referred to as results-based wellness. And this is when employees are rewarded only when they achieve certain health targets, such as stopping smoking or quitting tobacco use, lowering their LDL cholesterol or their blood glucose levels. And now with years of data available, these programs have shown to actually improve the health of the employee population. As a result, there has been reduced incidence in these diseases that we talked about earlier, as well as fewer visits to the doctor and fewer hospital procedures. Not to mention the decreased need for prescription drugs, which actually are increasing at a greater rate than the cost is increasing at a greater rate than, than health insurance. So it, it all ties together. So I, I, and I just remember reading an article a while back, so I don't know what the rules are now, but can they, let, let's say I'm an employee with, you know, I have, I have benefits, right? And I lose whatever, 20 pounds or something, whatever they ask me to do. Does that reflect in my premium or is that reflect in the group premium? Because I remember one company, I think it was a grocery store up north, they were, they actually did this and they were saying, oh, you can't individualize out people and, and incentivize one person over another, right? So what, what is the rule about Correct. how you can incentivize them and, and, because they said, well, you're picking on this person because they can't. They can't. They literally have a condition right. where they're unable to lose weight. Correct. And so why are you separating them out or individualizing them? Great question. So there's a couple of different levers you can pull. What is common now is what is absolutely legal. An employer can actually have a surcharge to an employee if he or she is a smoker. So with medical questionnaires, when it comes time for renewal, it's common to ask about smoking, and there was absolutely a smoking rate versus a non-smoking mm -hmm. rate. But in terms of physical achievement or losing weight, that's handled internally. It doesn't involve the insurance company, and that's really addressed in the form of maybe a weight loss challenge or okay. other types. And so, for example, what we'll do, and we've done this with many of our clients, is will do and help them implement a weight loss challenge where it'll be a percentage of body weight as okay. opposed to saying, okay, you know, whoever loses the most. Yeah, just you don't want to do that. No. That's not fair. <laughs> just sort of even the playing field. Right. Even the playing field. And the National Institutes of Health has actually set thresholds in terms of what targets you can set for employees to your point earlier because there has to be it has to be, there has to be a fairness to it. And the employer can actually make things easier, but they're not allowed to make it harder and make those targets harder to achieve than what the NIH has, has said. So if I set up this challenge and I meet my <clears throat> challenge, what, as an employee, what do I get other than being healthier? Is there any other aspect to this? Oh, yeah. I so mean, there's a challenge, obviously. So I win the challenge. Yeah. So that's where the fun comes in. So we, <laughs> we work with clients. And for example, one we're working with right now, large large client where they had a lot of employees were very sedentary, both in work and outside of work, and also the diet was poor. So we put in place a challenge where the winner gets gift cards to healthy food stores like mm -hmm. Whole Foods, where they'll get gift cards to spas, where uh, they'll also get and will have also, as part of the program, decreased gym memberships and, and discounts right. on gym memberships uh, for those employees as well. So all, all different kinds of rewards you can put in place. So it's all positive motivation. There's no like 
we don't want to be negative, right? It all has no. to be positive. Exactly. Start encouraging people. To exactly. Be you you want to make it fun, or else people aren't going to do it. Um, it can't be something that they feel mandated to do because, like you said earlier, you can't mandate them to do this. Mm-hmm. But again, what we've seen in every single client, once the benefits are very clearly laid out and the employees, and it's not just about money because money isn't an incentive to everyone. Right. A lot of it is just about feeling better and getting to that point every day where they're healthier. And sometimes it's just easier to do it in a group with this kind of guidance than it is on your own. Oh, absolutely. I know our gym comes up with these things all the way. They have these 60-day challenges, and they'll say, hey, let's do this. And I mean, it's all positive, right? So you can either join in or not join in. And, yep. then, and if you do, great. It's a great. I find those things a great way to get started because usually they're long enough to set up at least a pattern of habit. Yep. So you have a, a little bit better chance of continuing that habit. And I think um, at least I'm just speaking to the gym I belong to. They'll they'll train you on like nutrition. They'll tell you about you know like why you lose weight or how you lose weight and things like that. And um, you know not everybody does it obviously, but I think it's a positive, right? So if, if you encourage culture, is there anything that employers do themselves as far as I know we have like uh, like the space itself. I mean um, I know like our, ho- our local hospital set it up so you have to walk, right? So they yep. actually designed it. So you can do a little bit more walking and things yep. like that. So there are things that, you know, you want to encourage healthy behaviors yep. at work, right? Absolutely. So one example is vending sh- vending machines historically had what? Candy and soda. So what we're doing at clients where we're implementing these wellness programs is we're swapping out the candy and soda for granola bars and water or other healthy drinks. And this right here, these physical changes to the environment are having a really strong impact. Those employers that have in-house cafeterias or cafes were swapping out what they have, or maybe it's not a complete overhaul, but they'll do something like maybe have a, you know, a smoothie Wednesday where they'll be able to go in and get healthy drinks where normally all they had access to at work were unhealthy snacks and, and, you know, sodas, which are loaded with sugar. So... There are physical changes that if it all starts at the employer's end, if you have buy-in at the top, right. it's very easy to, to implement these and all the employees benefit. And, and I've noticed, you know, just personally running around as you see that there's more healthy options available. And I think once you do that, and I know personally at home, mm-hmm. if I stop buying it, it's a lot less likely I'm going to go physically go out of the house to go buy something. You know, you're... you're the, you know, Correct. The, the, the craving for that particular item is going to fade. You're right. You're likely to pick up something else that actually is right there. You're right. <laughs> and that's what the employees tell us. Because as you as you might imagine, this is not an overnight process. Oh, no. It's generally when we engage with a client for wellness, it's about a two to three year program and then ongoing. But two to three years to you know implement for really to see some major changes. And the feedback we get from the employees is, to your point, what the what they picked up at work carry it carries over at home. So instead of having that urge to grab that soda or grab that donut, then then they want to eat something healthier at home as well. I agree. Well, Stuart, this has been a, fa- a fantastic journey. I'm glad to see. I mean, we hear about the healthcare system a lot and how there's a lot of things that need to be fixed, and it's good to know that we're actually out there um, doing some steps to really kind of improve, uh, lowering the cost, making it a little bit more efficient. I mean, I know we have a long way to go, but the healthier we are, of course. 
regardless how the system is set up, if you stay healthier, then there's less uh, likelihood that you might need to actually utilize the system. Um, so you've been listening to uh, Master Your Finances. I am Kurt Baker, your host, a certified financial planner professional. You can listen to this podcast and all the podcasts at masteryourfinances.us. And remember that together we can master your finances so you can enjoy financial peace of mind. It's hard to keep up with the fast-paced financial world, but because of Master Your Finances, you have a head start. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, our certified financial planner professional, only on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. Tune in next week, Sunday at 9 a.m. to get a boost on your financial planning. But if you missed a week, you can check out past episodes. Just go to masteryourfinances.us to check out past episodes and more. Master Your Finances is underwritten by Certified Wealth Management and Investment LLC. Money doesn't grow on trees, but it can grow your portfolio. Thanks to Kurt Baker and Master Your Finances. On Sundays at 9 a.m. Exclusively on 1077 The Bronx and 1077 thebronccom